Back in the day, my buddies and I used to hike up to this place called Profile Rock in Freetown, Massachusetts. We always went late at night, sometimes around two or three in the morning. What can I say? It was just the best time to explore. I didn't know it then, but Profile Rock is actually part of the Bridgewater Triangle, a 200-square-mile area notorious for all kinds of paranormal shenanigans. One night, around our usual time, we climbed Profile Rock and hung out at the summit for a couple hours before heading home. We had to follow this winding two-mile path through the woods to get back to where we'd parked the car. One friend was walking beside me. The two others were ahead of us by about 20 or 30 feet. Now, I don't know why I turned around. It's not like I felt somebody was watching us. Between the flashlights on our phones and the patches of moonlight streaming in through the trees, the woods weren't nearly as foreboding as you might think. Still, I looked. No particular reason. I certainly didn't expect to see a figure running towards us at full bore from about 150 feet to our left. Odd as it may seem, the fact that some weirdo was galloping towards us through the trees out here in the middle of nowhere didn't bother me half as much as the way they ran. You know how zombies sometimes run in horror movies? Dragging one leg behind them and kind of shuffling forward in these jerky erratic motions? Yeah. That more or less describes what this quote-unquote person was doing. This had to be one of our asshole friends just trying to scare us. Or, on second thought, maybe some hiker had gotten lost or injured. Now seeing us was making a beeline for help. These were the thoughts running through my head as the figure closed the distance. It all happened so fast, I didn't have time to alert the others. As it crossed under an especially bright patch of moonlight, my heart stopped. I still get a lump of panic in my throat when I think about it. We've all seen those drawings that parents hang on their fridge, right? The stick figures scribbled by their kids. That's exactly how this thing looked. Granted, I only caught maybe a 10 second glance at it, but I ought to have been able to make out distinguishable features, right? The figure, as far as I could tell, had no mouth, no nose, no eyes. Its limbs were black and looked malnourished without a scrap of clothing visible anywhere. It's hard to describe, but there's no way it was just someone wearing a bodysuit. I yelled out to the friend nearest to me, who was now about 10 feet ahead, and indicated the figure rushing headlong towards us through the trees. As my friend turned, I shined my flashlight on him. From his expression, I knew I wasn't hallucinating. He immediately broke into a run. The friends up ahead called out, what's wrong, just run, I yelled. As we tumbled down the trail in a panic, I couldn't resist looking back. The figure was gone, no trace of it anywhere. Which was odd because only seconds before it had been close enough to be on our asses by now. As we jumped into the car, the friend who'd been walking next to me shouted, dude, tell me you saw that, what the fuck was that thing? I described what I'd seen, silly as it sounded. My friend just looked down, nodded. The others hadn't seen anything. And by the time we were in the car and got it into their heads, we were just playing a prank on them. But to this day, my friend swears on his father's grave that the stick figure was real. Footsteps creeping along the hall at midnight. Uh -huh. Shadows dancing. Floating from downstairs after twilight Big note Spectres moaning from the attic in reply Everyone has a spirit
spooky stories, something they don't discuss. But life is a haunted oratory when you're like us. So sit tight, turn on the light, and curl up with some ghoulish history. Something a little dark and dreary. Serve with a heaping dose of eerie. Raise those Moscow mules and clink them. Whoopsies. Ghost. Hi, I'm Jamie Markey. And I'm Michael Tatum. And this is Ghoul Intention. That was a really fun, different delivery. I really, I like it. I was committing, <laughs> I was trying to do, did you see what I did or hear what I did with the ooh? I, it came out, it started like a ghost and it ended up like I said on my balls. <laughs> you know. It's important to have range. <laughs> before ghosts become it was a layered performance, I think, and There's depth. that's powerful. There was depth. There was depth. <laughs> there was depth. <laughs> Nothing creates empathy in your audience like sitting on your balls. Um, yeah. Because I think yeah, everyone. Yeah, well, I mean, I can. I'm can I sympathetic. Be the, you, I'll say you, you, I can't can. be empathetic with you, that. <laughs> <laughs> I ain't you never have, sat on my balls have, before. You have lady balls. <laughs> You have I lady do. balls. I don't sit Isn't on them, like, though. No, I put them like, up you know, front, but, high No, but I mean, like, okay, but, like, if someone were to, like, you know, poke you in the boob, that hurts kind of like when a guy is kicked in the balls. Isn't that, isn't that, isn't that, that's what I've been given to understand is the analog no, to, it, to ball it pain. It worse when guys get kicked with balls than, yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong, a punch mean, to the tit ain't fine. You mean I've been but lied not, to all gonna, my life? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm not falling down on the floor and losing my breath because I got an elbow to the tit. Like, that's I not. I mean, maybe, maybe, maybe a big enough elbow to the tit might cause that to happen, but I guess if it's too big, it'll just go ahead and break a yeah, rib, and, and I mean, then the pain is about something else. It the time so. of the month, but, but it's not. It's, <laughs> it's What I've heard is that a direct shot to the balls Oh, God, why'd you like, have to say it exactly like that? Um, is is, is that, that quick second is like what happens during childbirth, but it is only one second, whereas childbirth can stretch on for hours. I mean, ball so, pain can stretch on for hours, too, especially if you have testicular torsion. Oh! oh. Right, right. But <sighs> it's it's just like, oh, it, that intense pain right at the beginning that knocks you down. The, yeah. Um, the, the women who are giving birth feel that for a long time. But you get to feel the miracle of creating a life. Isn't it worth it? Oh, shit. I don't get to feel shit. No, thank you. <laughs> I get to pet dogs. That's what I get to do. And I get to love Jack's daughters. I love them so much. And I'm so glad they did not come out of my body. I mean, fair, fair. God. I'm yeah. just you trying know what's to... funny, too, is you get to a certain age. Like, when you're in your early 30s, your 20s, early 30s, everybody's like, oh, when are you going to have kids? When are you going to have kids? And then when you get to your late 30s and into your 40s, your friends are all like, don't do it. <laughs> don't do it. <laughs> I just had a kid, don't do it. It is not worth I think it. My favorite, it's so fun. My favorite thing is a friend of ours. Years ago, um, we were at a, a party. And it was me and my then partner and and uh, our our friend and her husband were there who uh, who do not have children and everyone else at this fucking party who we knew all had kids every fucking one of them and they and they were all new parents so the kids were yeah. infants and toddlers and oh my god it was funny at some point you know the conversation inevitably turned to like you know comparing you know kid stories and stuff like that and so the four of us kind of felt a little little uh, out of place. And then one of them was like, man, all of my, dude, 
When I became a father, I used to have really cool stories, and now my stories are about poopy diapers. <laughs> and then our friend was like, it's funny, we don't have children. All of my stories are about disposable income. Ooh! <laughs> Ooh, I know, I know who you're talking about. I'll, I'll show myself actually... out. Like, there was a cry. I mean, it's not. <laughs> I was actually talking to her yesterday. It's just such or a no, great one. Ago, I will always ago. love and respect this person because I have never seen someone <laughs> pull a pull a room down quite so effectively. Oh, so it was great. art. So great. But recently, <laughs> this two days ago, I was at the dentist, so I was texting people, including you. I was bored. I had to sit there for a while. <laughs> and, and so uh, I was talking to her, and... Uh, we started talking about how I'm gr- I grind my teeth really bad, so I have to get a guard. Go figure. I would grind my teeth. I have nothing to be stressed out about. Huh. Um, yeah, that's but weird. But my <laughs> like the dentist said my shoulder pain could be caused from grinding my teeth because the it's human my, body is my so jaw is so weird. tight that gets into your neck muscles that stretched out into my traps and then into my shoulder. And I was like, well, we should probably get that guard going. So I just had the crowns on. It's a very safe dentist. Let me say that as well. Very, very safe. Good, good, good. They are completely shielded um, from me. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, you're the risk. uh, I know. I'm the risk. (laughs) As the patients, you're the risk. They're very, yeah, it's really, yeah, I feel very, very safe there. They're they're taking all the, uh, all the. Precautions. They're being as careful as possible, as humanly possible. Good. So, um. Then, but the important thing is getting this crown or these this guard because my jaw is constantly sore and my teeth are starting to crack. That's oh. how bad it is. Oh, God. And the temporary crowns I had on were worn down in the three weeks that I've had them on Oh, from grinding. Yeah, it's a real problem. And so Jesus, I was talking to Jamie? her about that. And so she mentioned um, that her husband had experienced the same thing and— um, he got this uh, wedge pillow to sleep on that relaxes his face, mm, and so mm, mm. he doesn't. He, so he has the guard, but also he doesn't grind as much, and it also helps with like, you know, acid reflux or if you snore yeah, or whatever. Yeah. And so we were talking about that, and I was like, you remember how, like, fifteen years ago, if we had this conversation, it would not be a wedge pillow for uh, for your teeth. <laughs> <laughs> and she's like, you know, it's funny you say that because when I was looking at it, it was the sex pillows were the only wedge pillows I could find when I was looking. I was like, yeah, that would have been our conversation 15 years. My how things change. We've had all those conversations. We live, we live though, in right? very, very weird times. What's, what yeah. is our uh, title for today, Jamie? Our title for today is I'm going to have to uh, open, open up that <laughs> That's a long. Thing. That's a long Just, title. Stretch, Michael, stretch. <laughs> stretch. Vamp, vamp. I was, well, damn it. Now I've got to figure okay. out who the Reddit poster was that the opening story came from. Okay, you do that <laughs> and I'll I tell can't. the title. <laughs> Wait, We're it's, ready. It's in here Man, somewhere. it's been a busy-ass week. Like, we just had a lot going on. I mean, it really I had has. the dentist really appointment has. changed, and so we had to postpone. And then Wednesday we couldn't do it because uh, our schedules wouldn't allow right, it. And right, then today right. I recorded for four hours before we're doing this. I'm <laughs> hungry, but we're getting it out there. We're getting it out there. We're doing so, the thing. Yes. Oh, uh, the title God. is... Um, Condemned to repeat. Yeah. Oh, yes, and yes, is, yes. 
It's from uh, George Santayana in 1905 said, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. But in a 1948 speech to the House of Commons, Winston Churchill changed the quote slightly when he said, those who fail to learn from history are condemned to repeat it. So, you know, we normally talk about history. But in today's episode, we will both be discussing various pandemics. So extraordinarily topical topics. Yeah. Um, also, we do a, we end up doing a lot of stories that take place in areas that have haunts because of the Spanish flu or because mm-hmm. of the plague. That's true. Or, you know, That's true. Um, and, and we don't ever really get into how these pandemics really affected the world, what they were, how they came about, um, what people believed at the time. And so... Uh, we decided we would delve into that. Yes. Uh, hopefully not getting too preachy. That's not the plan. But history is history. So we want to yeah. make sure yeah. and that when we're you're, And when you're covering, that. and you know, while there may not be any ghosts in today's episode, there certainly is a lot that's ghoulish. Uh, yes, so it very seemed much so. it just seemed this was a topic very close it's still to morbid our hearts. As fuck. Oh god, it's so <laughs> so deliciously morbid and terrifying. Yeah. So we should offer a trigger right. warning for anyone that's finding the current pandemic to be especially anxiety inducing. You may not want to hear this episode just because it's not gonna help. Yeah. And <laughs> um, and you know, to be fair, I also find it anxiety you also find it anxiety inducing. Oh yeah, inducing, yeah, but absolutely. But I mean about, like about for me, I'll say that for me. Mm. Um, finding out other stuff and how people worked with it and what it dealt with and da 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 has helped me understand some of it a little bit better, right? Yeah, yeah, now, good point. Good point. Where, yeah, yeah, where we're going? Uh, is it fair that people who run the country and say, "Hey, we don't have to wear masks and we don't have to do anything," and then they get it and they get the top medical care, and other people who are getting it, even though that they're following all precautions. They don't get that top medal. Is that fair? No, that's not fair. No, but, it's not. You know, it's so fucked anyway. up. And and hopefully we've turned a corner and the end is in sight. But it's gonna get worse before it gets better. Yeah. It's absolutely going to because yeah. winter's coming. And, and oh god, I didn't mean. Did I just say that? But you winter, said it. winter is coming. And and with uh-huh. it are gonna be a lot of indoor activities and people that are and the holidays and people not really thinking. And I it scares mm-hmm. me. I mean, we're on we're on pretty severe lockdown here in L. A. And I I feel I feel safer, but it's also mm-hmm. a little terrifying. I mean, you know, because, you know, it, it either way, it's terrifying. You know, when you're living yeah. somewhere where <laughs> no one gives a shit and is still going on business as usual, it's yeah. terrifying. And when you live somewhere uh, in which, you know, there's lockdown because the lockdown just makes it feel so real. Um, so it's damn yeah. you do. It's just, but the reality is, is that the pandemic is just fucking awful and everyone's going to have their own anxieties, uh, of course, and they're going to take different forms. So hopefully this will help give it some perspective for you. But again, I cannot stress enough. If you are particularly sensitive to details about the ravages of a pandemic and historically what they can do, then maybe skip this episode until COVID but is over. can they listen to the news of the weird first? They absolutely can, because that's what we're going to start okay, with. Okay, good. Uh, okay, good. <laughs> I'm kind of excited about that. Yeah, I've done this in a while, and I just found a couple topics, a couple stories, and I thought, oh yeah, these are good. So, my first story today's uh, slew smorgasbord of weird news is, whoopsies, hypocrite. A <gasps> vocally anti-LGBTQ plus lawmaker in Lithuania oh. was caught on tape with a naked man in a Zoom call mishap. God, this is definitely the best thing about COVID is the Zoom call mishaps. Um, Mm. 
MP and eminent politician Petras uh, Grazulis, I'm probably not saying his name correctly, but fuck him, uh, was caught in flagrante delecto while attending an online meeting of parliament during which he accidentally turned on his camera and gave uh, everyone a brief glimpse into his home. Brief though that glimpse was, the footage was long enough to cause embarrassment for him, who uh, who's a member of the right-wing order and justice party of Lithuania. Uh, Lithu- God damn it. Lithuania. Lithuania. <laughs> yeah. um, in the video, which has since gone viral, of course, the man can be seen wearing no uh, the man can be seen wearing no shirt uh, and appearing behind the MP's shoulder. The incident is especially embarrassing uh, for Grazulis, uh, who was often shown explicit disapproval of non-traditional forms of union and, of course, is not sympathetic to LGBTQ plus rights. Grazulis had in uh, 2012 said that all gay people should leave Lithuania. I'm sure most of them do want to leave. Mm -hmm. Um, He initially tried to claim the man seen in the video was his son, but soon changed his tune, saying it was uh, somebody named uh, Andreas uh, Tapinas, a journalist critical of him who he, the MP now insists, staged the stunt out of malice by doctoring the footage. The only problem, Uh (laughs) the guy in the video bears absolutely no resemblance to Topinus. This is just the latest in Zoom faux pas that have been rampant throughout this pandemic. Earlier in the year, news commentator Jeffrey Tubin here in the States was suspended by the New Yorker magazine for masturbating on a conference call, unaware his camera was capturing all of it. Uh, in September, an Argentine... Like, how bad do you gotta hit it? I mean, it just depends just, on the angle. It depends call. on the angle. Um... <laughs> right, That I mean, that's two. there's two things here. One, why are you <laughs> masturbating during a conference call? Shouldn't you pay some attention? Don't you have a lot of other time to masturbate? Like, I don't know. I mean, have you ever done, when, you know, have you ever done these really long meetings that go on for like four hours and eventually like, I can't even leave the room because they'll know I won't, I'm not here. So God, I'm just going to masturbate. I don't know. Yeah, I don't. I mean, no. I'm not saying I've you done it. You can hold it for four hours. You can it. hold it. You can hold it for four hours. Um, I mean, you, if you, you can't. You have a problem, and that's a different apology that you need to make to the community. But two, where is that camera pointed? Because I know we're on a Zoom call right now. It's head and shoulders, right? Yeah, but and I mean, honestly, is a, is a okay, little bit mine's higher a little higher. But like, be honest. Boots. But if my if my if my junk was out, you could tell even if you weren't seeing it. You could, you know, if I were masturbating, not that I would ever do that. Certainly not in this booth. It's far too no, constrictive. That's not, it's, but yeah. and certainly I mean, not on a have Zoom no call. Elbow room. I have no elbow room at all. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not trying to like blow my own horn, but it's only because I don't have to. No, but that's um, because you're I, in the booth. You're I, not supposed to. <laughs> Uh, but but no, but I'm saying this is a no, this isn't a booth situation it's a weird where you have to thing. get behind a microphone or anything like yeah, that. Yeah, you're at a desk with your laptop and people. I don't yes. know. I guess it all just depends. Your like dick in the picture? maybe it's just that big um, that there's just. Was he standing up masturbating? I don't know. I haven't seen that. I've tried to find the footage and I can't find it, so I can't answer that question for you. Um, But yeah, so that was that was Tubin. An Argentinian lawmaker was forced to resign uh, in September Mm -hmm. after being caught on live camera getting a little frisky with his girlfriend, like his like her top was off and he was like just motorboating apparently. Um, Oh, I don't think you should lose it for that. I don't think. (laughs) Just a little motorboating. Just a little motorboating. It's harmless. (laughs) Harmless. Harmless. Don't don't Um, do it. 
Today's 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 show is brought to you by the letter M for motorboating. Um, in June, in June, Ireland's uh, Luke Ming Flanagan appeared to be wearing no trousers as he discussed policy policy matters with his European Parliament peers. So you just got to be careful with Zoom people. You, it, it's yeah. First of all, also the camera adds like ten pounds. So like, just don't do it. Yeah. Um, Next story, stripping for Jesus. The pastors of two California megachurches did a family-friendly striptease in their Sunday services recently, removing their ties to mock the state's shutdown of churches while allowing adult establishments to remain open. Um, A pastor, Rob McCoy of Godspeak Calvary Chapel in Thousand Oaks, had a similar striptease where he removed his tie in a November 22nd service before blasting the government and calling uh, calling Christians to preach the gospel by defying government tyranny and contending for their neighbors' livelihoods in the public square. I use that murder idea. them with your breath. That's murder all. them with your breath. Show them you love Jesus. And here's Jesus, a little strip like... tease to illustrate why that's a thing. Um, and quote, you're contending for the welfare and the concerns and the livelihood of your neighbors, said McCoy. Love thy neighbor as you love thyself. Those that are abused are being quarantined with their abusers. The elderly are lonely and isolated <sighs> for no reason. No one gets to attend the funerals of their loved ones. It's our, it's our responsibility to support folks. We are finished with your tyranny, he says while taking off, you know, right. his As clothes. If, yeah, this is the first time he's probably ever given a shit about anyone abused. Exactly. Ever. I'm like, yeah, where, where's right. the help for the abused people when we're not in the middle of a pandemic, you piece of shit? Yeah, aren't you going to find some sort of scripture uh, that says you got to stay with them anyway because that's what God would want? Right. Fuck you. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. And those <laughs> People are, and those old people are alone anyway. And you know what? There'd be funeral. There'd be fewer funerals for people to attend if you'd fucking observe co- protocols. Um, yep. Oh, yep. sorry. Uh, McCoy and his church have faced numerous penalties for ignoring government orders in recent months. Good. But of course, they still pay no taxes. Um, also, I think it's ridiculous that this motherfucker pretends he's never been to a strip club and that it's no contact. Like, come on. Yeah. <laughs> All right. A Northern Irish woman who made headlines around the world for marrying a 300-year-old pirate ghost has has opened up about why she decided to divorce her spiritual lover. Mm. Amanda Teague from Down Patrick wed her ghost husband, Jack. Really, Captain Jack? On international waters back in 2016. (laughs) They first met in 2010 when Jack presented himself to her. One thing led to it makes it sound like he just had a Zoom call slip up. Oh, our minds are in the same gutter. I love it. One thing led to another, and they were soon married. But it wasn't long before Amanda started to notice cracks in the relationship, like the fact that he was trying to kill her and that he'd never do the dishes. <laughs> <laughs> never. He never He never used them, um, to be fair. With her health quickly declining, she realized Jack was using her as an energy source. Quote, <gasps> my health just kept getting worse and worse and worse to the point where I ended up with, a, with sepsis last year in June, and I almost died. She told uh, Eamon Holmes on the This Morning Show, I had to have an emergency surgery. The 46-year-old was soon forced to confront the truth that was staring her in the face. Jack was basically an energy vampire, she explained. When we die, it's normal to stay in the earthbound realm for a period, but when spirits stay around too long, (laughs) you're losing it, I love it. They need an energy source. And unfortunately, Jack was using me as his energy source. Uh, He had never accepted his own death, so he wanted to continue living through my body. 
well versed pirate in Pirate their- is going to pirate, bitch. You should have known that. <laughs> he wasn't hiding who he was. Oh, God. How did that weird, how'd that first date go? Okay, like, full disclosure, I have scurvy. Right. Um, but it's okay, because I died from it. Now, well versed. <laughs> Well-versed in the realm of possession and spirit attachment, Amanda was given little option but to seek divorce by exorcism back in 2018. I mean, that's relatable. Uh, How do you get that paperwork delivered? (laughs) Despite the distressing situation and near-death experience, she has few regrets about her marriage to a pirate energy vampire. I do believe that everything happens to us for a reason, she explained. She has thankfully quit all forms of mediumship in the wake of the incident. Probably for the best. (laughs) Um, (laughs) This is a a fun story. It's just just titled, You Son of a Bitch! A Taiwanese man who attempted to convince his wife that his PlayStation 5 was an air purifier was reportedly forced to sell the the device after she discovered the ruse. Uh, Jin Wu (laughs) posted on Facebook that he purchased the gaming console secondhand. The PS5 had been highly has been highly coveted since its release last month. Wu said the reseller he spoke with turned out to be a wife, uh, the wife of the original owner, according to his translated social media posts. Wu told, uh, Wu wrote that the price was extremely affordable, especially considering the console had been sold out in most stores, and the woman was eager to sell it to him. When he went to pick up the PlayStation, he met the woman's husband, who explained that he was forced to sell the gaming console after his wife realized it was not an air purifier, as he had told her. Wu said the man (laughs) seemed a little bitter. Upon the release of the highly anticipated gaming device, consumers eager to get their hands on a new PS5 were met with a supply shortage. Sony recently reassured shoppers that it would release more inventory before the end of the year. No word yet on whether they're going to make air purifiers. Um, <laughs> and lastly, because it's so topical for us today, Ohio has been added. Uh, has uh, Ohio has been added to the Ohio Department of Health's COVID nineteen travel advisory map, meaning the state oh. is recommending Ohioans avoid traveling to Ohio, and those entering Ohio after traveling from Ohio are advised to stay there. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, outside the Matrix or a Christopher Nolan movie, this is physically impossible. To be clear, you are free to move about the state, but the ODH recommends staying home except for the necessary trips. Uh, The ODH included this statement on this week's travel advisory. Quote, this is the first week since April where Ohio's positivity for COVID has increased above 15%. The state has seen record levels of cases, deaths, and hospitalizations in the past week, and all Ohioans can help limit the spread and impact of this virus. This includes recommendations to stay at home, except for necessary uh, trips and supplies, consistent mask wearing when around others, and frequent hand washing. Together, we can help stop the spread of COVID-19. Ohio was added to its own travel advisory map because, as ODH states, the seven-day rolling average positivity rate for COVID-19 tests in the state rose above 15% for the first time since Mm. April. Uh, Any state with a positivity rate above 15% is put on the map automatically, and the ODH recommends against travel to those states with high high positivity. So, I mean, I guess good for them being self-aware, but it's like... Uh, yeah, your home uh, is you're under quarantine and your home's also a hotspot. <laughs> right. Oh, so Jesus. Enjoy. So that is the news of the weird this week. Love there was it. a lot more, but those seem to be weird. the quirkiest items. Very especially, weird. Especially, and fun. especially the pirate Because it's ghost about one. to not be fun. <laughs> no, not at all. Yeah. Not at all. Does anyone need a drink? We will. So just bear that in mind. Yeah. All right. Here we go. Take okay, us down so- the rabbit hole. We are going to be talking about the 1918 flu, also known commonly as the Spanish flu. Mm-hmm. So, 
My sources are an article by Richard Gunderman on theconversation.com, Wikipedia, of course, and an interview where John White, chief medical officer at WebMD, discusses the history of the Spanish flu with Dr. Howard Markle, the director for the history of medicine at the University of Michigan. Okay. So here we go. The Spanish flu, also known as the 1918 flu pandemic, was an unusually and extremely deadly influenza pandemic that lasted from February 1918 to April 1920. Oh. So just keep that in mind. Oh. It had four waves in that two-year time period that ended up infecting half a billion people. Jesus Christ. Which was about a third of the world's population at the time. God damn. The death toll is typically estimated to have been somewhere between 17 and 50 million people, but it could have possibly been as high as 100 million people, making it one of the deadliest pandemics in human history. Jesus Christ. In the United States alone, anywhere from 550 to 750,000 people died, which puts into perspective of how deadly coronavirus is. Two years and it took 550 to 750,000 people. As of this recording, we're, we are already at 290,000 people and we're not even at a year. So, also, we have better medicine. Well, we have medicine. Yeah, but we also have social media. Yeah. Well, we're, yeah. So, during the 1918 pandemic, at least 10 million Americans got very, very sick with influenza, which, as you know, is not a common cold, not a mild infection. There were very little uh, there was very little medical care, as we understand it today. A hospital was basically a bed and maybe somebody feeding you hot liquids. There were no IVs, no antibiotics, no ventilators. And a lot of people who got the flu got a secondary bacterial uh, pneumonia. And that is what killed them because there was no medication for that. Nope. So they had weakened lungs. Now they've got pneumonia. So there's a lot of talk about um, we call the Spanish flu the Spanish flu because it came from Spain. Um, so why can't we call COVID-19 the China flu, right? Right, um, right. Well, first of all, the Spanish flu did not originate in Spain. No. What happened was <laughs> the first observations of illness and mortality were documented in France, Germany, the U.K., and the United States in Kansas and New York specifically with an earlier outbreak in December of 1917 at Camp Green, North Carolina you will notice that none of these locations are, in fact, Spain. I was wondering. Yeah. So, <laughs> to maintain morale during World War One, which is what's happening at the time, censors minimized the early reports. However, in España, which had a neutral stance during the war, newspapers were free to report the truth about what was going on, including the grave illness of King Alfonso Thirteenth. Those reports created the false impression, because they were the only ones reporting it, uh, that Spain was especially hard hit. So that gave rise to the new name, Spanish flu. And um, yet when you get down to the historical and epidemiological, epidemiological, I said it, data. You did. <laughs> they don't fucking know. They don't really know where it started. Mm. But it wasn't Spain. Right. It's assumed that the first wave was most likely in the summer. And then in the fall of 1918, influenza, which this one was the H1N1 strain specifically, it ripped through the world basically and particularly in the United States. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, And then there was a second wave or a surge in January to April part of 1919, which was pretty darn bad, but not as bad as the fall one. And then there was another surge in the winter of 1920. Hmm. 25 million people died in just the first six months. Jesus Christ. People started to feel, to fear, understandably, that this was the end of mankind as we know it, right? I feel like we we start to feel like that Like an extinction-level event, yeah. Yes, yeah. Uh, And from that came the assumption that this particular strain of influenza was particularly lethal. But more recent studies suggest that although it did kill more people, the virus itself was not fundamentally different from strains that caused epidemics in other years. Much of the high death rate is due to the crowding in military camps and urban environments, Mm. as well as poor nutrition and sanitation, which suffered during wartime. Mm. Add to that those secondary bacterial pneumonias in lungs that had been weakened by influenza, and you have a recipe for certain death. Um, At this time period, running water was not even common in the U.S. yet. Not everyone had it. There were fin- uh, there were finally more people living in the city in the U.S. than living out in the country. That was a first. Of mm. course, then you had soldiers gearing up, and they were in army camps where they dug latrines and washed their hands from probably a well. <sighs> Sanitation was an issue, right? Oh, Face masks were really in their infancy, infancy at this time, too. And while yeah. they were worn in a few places like San Francisco and Seattle and Los Angeles, they were made out of four or five layers of gauze. Yeah, so, like, they were... Gauze, so, like, yeah. that doesn't really keep anything protected. Um, <laughs> I mean, you, you might really as well have just walked it. around with a little paper fan and just constantly fanned yourself. But they yourself. were trying. <laughs> but even back but then, also... did you know, even back then, I, you may have uncovered this, so I don't mean to jump the gun, but even back then, people didn't want to wear masks. People made yeah, fucking yeah. made a stink about it. Yeah, yep. But, uh, there and there were social distancing measures mm-hmm. taken as well, Uh That was basically the public health back then. Quarantine and isolation. So you isolate the ill and you quarantine those you suspect having contact with the ill. Public gathering bans, the closure of bars, of amusements, of theatrical events, and school closures. This all happened and the United States survived. Nobody was worried about Wall Street. Yeah. Right, Right. Or they were, but not as much as people pretend to be now. Right. The Center for the, Hist- uh, the History of Medicine in the universe- at the University of Michigan worked with the CDC to do a rather comprehensive study that was published in the Journal of the AMA in August of 2007. They found that those cities that did the social distancing measures and acted early or did more than one or layered them, the, the quarantining schedules, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that they did uh, um, far better in terms of morbidity and mortality than those that did not. This study showed that this is where flattening the curve came from. Mm. It was the first historical evidence base of this concept of flattening Ah. the curve. And of course, now we have the most, um, well, the best and also most tragic experiment of all. We have been doing social distancing measures all around the world. Nature Magazine called it the one measure that saved more lives in a shorter period of time than anything ever concocted by humans. Mm. If you look at the lives that that were saved. Just let that sink in for a moment. Just let that sink in. (laughs) Mm -hmm. More than medicine or antibiotics, the idea of just fucking keeping your distance from other people for a while. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, man. Uh, If you look at the lives that were saved and the infections that were prevented when it has been done between the Spanish flu and now, it just fucking works. 
It does. But it does. To be fair, social distancing is really a form of hiding from the virus. It doesn't prevent the virus. It doesn't treat the virus. It does not make you immune from the virus. So when you go out there, whether you're wearing a mask or not, um, whether you're wearing a mask or not, but you interact with more people for longer periods of time, you are increasing your risk of contracting COVID-19. It's as simple as that. Yep. It's true. I mean, it's just it's just now, how it's how it works. Yeah. Back to 1918, no one had experience with this kind of outbreak before. And unlike most seasonal flus, which tend to affect and kill very young babies and very old people, this flu was kind of a W-shaped curve of mortality. Mm. So on each end of the W, you have the young and then the very old, the very uh-huh. young and the very old. Uh-huh. And in the middle of the W is where that contained people from 20 to 45 and they were dying left and right, which was very odd, very odd. The highest death rates came in the second wave, of course, from October to December of 1918. A third wave was more lethal than the first, but not as bad as the second. Mm. Scientists now believe the marked increase in deaths in the second wave was caused by conditions that favored the spread of a deadlier strain. People with mild cases were staying home. But those with severe cases were often crowded together in hospitals and camps, Uh. increasing transmission of a more lethal form of the virus. The vast majority of people who contracted the 1918 flu survived. National death rates among the infected generally did not exceed 20%. However, death rates varied among different groups. In the U.S., deaths were particularly high against Native American populations, possibly due, probably due, to lower rates of exposure to past strains of influenza. In some cases, entire Native communities were wiped out. And this was just in 1918, right? God. Uh, that said, keep in mind that 20% is extremely high. Uh, <laughs> Most flu yeah. deaths, yeah, typical flu deaths is less than 1% of yeah. people who get it, yeah. Yep, yep. No specific antiviral therapies were available during that time, which is still largely true today. Most medical care for the flu aims to support patients through the effects of the virus rather than to cure them. One hypothesis suggests that many of the deaths could have actually been attributed to aspirin poisoning. Oh. Medical authorities at the time recommended large doses of aspirin of up to 30 grams per day. For perspective, today's recommendations are about four grams. Uh. And they were recommending 30. Jesus. It's a lot. There's a lot of aspirin. I feel like there were a lot of ulcers. There had to have been. Of course. Lots of acid reflux, you know. Um, Yeah, large doses of aspirin can lead to many of the pandemic's symptoms, including bleeding, right? Mm. Ulcers, right? Mm -hmm. What am I saying? Mm -hmm. Shocking, but it's also important to note that death rates in places where aspirin wasn't available were also high. So even 100 years later, that debate is ongoing. Now, We know they didn't publicize or cover the pandemic very much to maintain morale. But on top of that, there was concern that full disclosure would empower enemies during wartime. And they wanted to preserve public order to avoid panic. Common things we've heard this time around, but without a war going on. Mm. A world war, making Uh it more complicated. Uh And also, uh, nobody was sucking Russia's dick at the time. So anyway, however, (laughs) (laughs) officials did actually you know, respond accordingly. They did something. At the height of the pandemic, quarantines were instituted in many cities. Some were forced to restrict essential services, including police and fire. Mm. 
Since all sides of the war were relatively equally affected, it is not likely that the flu changed the outcome of World War I, which is a very common belief that the, the flu is what ended the war. Um, yeah. Or the or why who won won. That's because everybody right. was affected by it. Yeah. But there's little doubt that the war influenced the course of the pandemic. The concentration of millions of troops created ideal conditions for the development of more aggressive strains of the virus and its spread around the globe. <sighs> Another common misconception is that the genes of the virus have never been sequenced. Well, long story short, just FYI on gene sequencing, it's studying the DNA to help biological and medical research and discovery. That's what it does. Um, but they, it, a lot of people don't believe that there was a strain of the DNA to study. Mm. But in 2005, ah. researchers announced that they had successfully de- uh, determined the gene sequence of the 1918 virus. The virus was recovered from the body of a flu victim buried in the permafrost of Alaska. <gasps> Oh, wow. And they, yeah, and they used that in com- combination of with um, samples of American soldiers who fell ill at the time. Ah. And so they could do it then. I thought that was really fucking cool. That um, is really cool. That's I like some Jurassic Park shit. <laughs> I know. I know. Scientists now believe that an immune system overreaction is what contributed to the high death rates among those otherwise healthy young adults. That mm. middle of the W. Mm-hmm. So basically what they did was trigger warning for pet uh, herding, they gave um, monkeys or chimpanzees, I can't remember which one, um, but they gave them the flu Mm. to see how their bodies would react. And the ones that were healthy in the middle age, their immune system freaked out on them and killed them. So they were kind of killed by their own immune system trying to protect it off and just it was freaking out. So they think that's what happened to people who were younger. Their immune system didn't know how to cope with it. Like, yeah. Um, Severe epidemics tend to occur every few decades, and here we are in a hopefully once in a century. 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 Century pandemic. I'm hoping that, right? Like, this is a once in a century thing. We're not going to have another one in two, three years. Uh, Today, scientists know more about how to isolate and handle large numbers of ill and dying patients. And physicians can prescribe antibiotics that were not available in 1918 to combat secondary bacterial infections. It helps to have a hospital available, though. And you have to consider the same thing happened for both the 1918 flu and COVID-19. If the hospitals are full of people who need treatment for these viruses, then other people who need to get into the hospital for other reasons do not get seen as quickly. Uh Heart attacks, strokes, car accidents, freak accidents. They're not getting in. They don't get a place. And Uh so the mortality rate goes up Uh and the age, the average age of death is going down because of that. Yep. So how did they get rid of it? Right? That's what we want to know. How did I get rid of it? Well, it wasn't by immunizations. They were not using those against the flu in 1918. Nope. Exposure to prior strains of the flu may have offered some protection or immunity. For example, the natives who had little exposure to the flu were hard hit, like I mentioned earlier. But soldiers who had served in the military longer, mm-hmm. were not. their death rates were not as high as new soldiers. Mm. So mm. it's like the exposure to it helped them create some immunity. Okay. Now, um, influenza is very different than COVID-19. So if you hear people saying they're the same, they are not no, at all. No, not at all. Um, the exception is that they are both respiratory transmitted viruses. There you go. That's how they're similar. Yeah. Influenza tends to burn itself out when the cold weather gets warmer. 
We know that. Epidemiologists were hopeful that the same it was the same case with coronavirus because with SARS back in 2003, that's what happened uh-huh. there. Uh-huh. It, it got hot. It's too hot for it. Mm-hmm. Um, this hope is most likely why Donald Trump went ahead and said it would disappear in the summer or whatever stupid thing he was he said yeah. um, at the beginning of the pandemic. Like, it would just go away. It would just it's go away. Pro- he, pr- he probably said that because they were hoping it would. But nobody knew for a fact. You know, it's just kind of like we have to get there and see first. Yeah. It turns out the coronavirus does quite well in warm weather. Uh. But it probably will do even better in cold weather, especially uh. as we're all indoors, like you were saying, mm-hmm. and crowded and we use artificial forms of heat, which can cause little breaks in your mucosa, your nose and your mouth that protect you. So you are more vulnerable in the winter as well. So, okay, what about your creepy uncle who lives in Tennessee that keeps screaming about herd immunity? <laughs> right? Yeah. Tell us about, tell us about Uncle Ralph. All right, herd immunity was never developed as a population kind of measure when a virus spreads through a particular community. It was based on active immunity, giving people immunizations. For example, giving lots of children immunizations for measles, mumps, what have you, right? And when you've immunized actively 90% or more of a community, that's enough, right? active immunization is 90% or more, then when that infection came into that community, subsequently, it would not spread because people were immune to it. Mm -hmm. Because, yeah, they've been immunized. You cannot have herd immunity without immunization. Right. It's in the fucking title. Yeah. That's what right. that's what herd immunity means, people. It means that you've immunized you've immunized the herd. It doesn't mean that the herd it's really just hard it to doesn't say mean immunity, that the herd immunized immunizations really in the same like, um, phrase. And maybe that's why some people don't believe in it because they're like it's too hard maybe. to say. Uh, yeah. But I it's about it, it herds don't just automatically develop immunization over time. Mm-hmm. They just or uh, immunity. Mm-hmm. They don't. It has to be introduced from without by a vaccination. <sighs> yeah, and and the idea of doing that, of letting it build up immunity naturally, first of all, you would never get to levels of 60 to 90 percent, which is what's estimated you would need to get that immunity. 20 percent is what they figure can happen, and that is not enough to make any changes. No. What is the point? And I read this. What is the point of living in the 21st century if we are still using 13th century medical procedures, right? Medical <laughs> We'll be talking ideas. a little bit about the next segment and how uh, awesome they weren't. <laughs> yeah. The, the methodology, all, we get to learn methodologies. We get to learn new ones. So we don't have to use them for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. We don't have to do the same thing that they did in the plague because we have fucking science. Anyway, <laughs> so shut up, creepy uncle. You don't know what the fuck you're talking about. Ugh. The 1918 flu probably burned itself out because the weather changed. Add to that, there were people who were just immune. Also, the virus rapidly mutated, so it likely evolved over time into less lethal strains, Hmm. a la natural selection. Uh Because highly lethal strains were killing their host rapidly, it would run out of places to go. Right, right. So it drives drives itself extinct. It Basically, it depletes its resources. Yes, but the people who have mild cases, they're more likely leaving and spreading it and stuff like that. Uh-huh, that doesn't uh-huh. mean if you have a mild case, you should leave and spread it because that's no, a that just means let's wait until COVID um, gets milder. <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, in that interview with Dr. Howard Markle, his comments really put it well. So I'm going to read his thoughts on how COVID could end. COVID could end. Will it just go away? Will it just vanish like a miracle? Well, hopefully, I think what the magic bullet that will protect us and then end this nightmare will be is a safe, potent, and effective vaccine. Once we do achieve herd immunity the old-fashioned way based on vaccines, I think then we have a fighting chance of ending this chapter in human history. But there's a huge but, not just for industry or doctors or scientists or medicine to come up with a safe vaccine. But it's all of our responsibility, say here in the United States uh -huh. or in Germany or England or other countries around the world, to roll up our sleeves and take that vaccination. Uh -huh. And uh -huh. we already have an amazing amount of politici politici politicization with this <laughs> pandemic, more than any I've seen or studied. That's a lot of epidemics over a lot of time. And we have anti-vaccinationists. And so it will be essentially to have leadership from the government and in science and in medicine who demonstrate that the vaccine is safe and effective and that we as a community all get vaccinated because it's a socially mediated disease. Uh -huh. I can get you sick and I won't get you sick and you won't get me sick if we're both vaccinated. Right. I agree with Dr. Markle. And I'm so relieved we're about to get some people in charge that will actually give a shit about the rest of us. Oh, my God, right. Bring who on those vaccinations. Who are actual experts. <laughs> yes, yes. Oh, my God. And so there you go. Oh, the Jesus. Spanish flu, okay, well, the 1918 I... flu pandemic. Mm -hmm. uh, that is the history behind that, how it developed, and why it's different. It's not the same. Well, after that, I definitely need to self-medicate and pour myself another drink before we launch sure. into the other big pandemic. Uh, so let's take a quick break and we'll come back yes. and discuss more dark shit. Let's do it. Happy holidays. Hopefully happy. <laughs> it's a holiday Hope commercial. Hopeful holidays. <laughs> Hopeful happy holidays. <laughs> this is our commercial for Patreon. Yay. Uh, so sign up, join. Be a Do patron. It. Join Do the it. Discord. It's a lot of fun. They have D&D games. They're so fun. It's oh, very it's supportive. Great, it's such a great community. No reason not to it's do it. It's so much fun to interact with our community. That's true. And also, it it's helpful for us, too, to keep uh, from other commercials getting in besides this one this so is please join true. uh it's it is it is a lot of fun and we do so appreciate all of the support that we have from patrons out there um we appreciate anything that anything you could do uh mm -hmm. patreon.com ghoul intentions <laughs> and uh we really really appreciate it our discord chats will be for all discord uh, members that will be on the 12th of December yes. at 4 p.m. Central Standard Time. Correct? Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Yes, indeed. And then we will also have one for our Phantasm tier, uh, the nice. Discord Phantasm tier at 4 p.m. Central Standard Time, same, t same time on the 26th. Yes. So join us. We love, join us. We love hearing from you. We love getting to talk with you in a more interactive way. We really, mm -hmm. really look forward. We just finished up a chat uh, yesterday. 
uh, yeah, with our patrons, really and we all agree that it's just like I don't know, it's just so much fun. It, it's it's my it's one of my favorite things about doing this podcast is getting to interact yeah. with the community and hearing personal stories and just getting to chat with people, especially and now questions that we don't think about. Exactly. Like what was the one? The book? Like what? Yeah. What? Uh, what? To, what us? Yeah. What? Or what? Like what literary style would you would you adopt if you were writing a ghost story? Was, yes. was uh, Sarah's Such question. Such a great question. And it was yeah, so, we, so good. We have so I'm, much fun with it. So. Yeah. Uh, and you will too if you are a patron. If mm-hmm. you aren't sure, um, find a patron and ask them, and they'll tell you. It's it's yeah. a lot of fun, and we yeah. certainly certainly appreciate the support. And the group um, and the and community is very supportive of each other as well. So once you're in, you're family. That's right. Mm-hmm. That's right. So yay, yay, patron, and happy holidays. Hopeful holidays. We hope to see you on happy Patreon. Hopeful holidays. <laughs> wow. Stay spooky. Okay, Michael. <laughs> All right, here we go. Uh, so I'm obviously, I mean, I'm going to talk about the the Black Death, the 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 Bring big, it, she the big did. one, the big one, yeah, the big dead. one. And uh, I learned a lot during research for this. So uh, my sources, and there were a lot, but primarily they were Wikipedia, National Geographic, um, two YouTube channels that I highly recommend. One called Wisecrack, and another called Down the Rabbit Hole. Uh, and this have... is a U- these are YouTube channels that use facts yes. and evidence based research, not like just random. I feel this way strongly, so I'm going to talk about. Yes, it. yes, these are actually okay, well, these are well argued, well researched, just like historical essays on on various uh, topics. Um, so I highly, rec- I highly recommend them. They're also very entertainingly produced. And uh, finally, the an article uh, called "The Religious Responses to the Black Death" by Joshua J. Mark. Now. Let's get into it. There's a lot, a lot of ground to cover because the plague was a kind of a big deal. Um, now, if you've taken high school English, odds are you have at least a passing acquaintance with the Canterbury Tales, right? Maybe, mm-hmm. maybe, maybe you even liked it. You know, maybe the Knight's Tale tugged at your heartstrings. Maybe the you chuckled at the wife of Bath's ribald repartee like I did, or you sneered at the partner, or you cringed at the milliner's drunken antics, or delighted in the summoner's outrageous clapback at the friar. Well, I mean... I love that you know how ridiculous you sound. I know absolutely how ridiculous <laughs> I sound. And if you agree, we should hang out more. Truth is, I'm obviously a lit nerd, so I'm a big fan of the Canterbury Tales. Uh, mm-hmm. Chaucer's magnum opus was a game changer in its day, one of the uh, a crucial part of the foundation on which all of English lit now rests. But even fellow aficionados may not be aware that Chaucer cribbed the well-known framing device for his work from an earlier one. A group of people collected under one roof, trading stories to pass the time, stories that directly or indirectly lay bare the soul of the teller. Well, uh, thanks to Chaucer's sublime verse, it's a trope we're all familiar with. In fact, it's a trope we're all fucking living in right now. Um... Mm. Uh, incidentally, if you've only ever read modern English translations, I highly recommend fellow lit nerds to actually try to sit down with the original Middle English. It's far less work than you think, especially since most editions come with uh, really good glossaries in the margins. And there's just a what the, the late great Harold Bloom, a uh, critic, uh, called cognitive music in the experience, which I highly recommend. Anyway, the tales amount to a battery of distinct, fully-fledged personalities, the likes of which the English world had simply never seen represented in verse. But the central conceit bringing those personalities together to trade quips, tantalize, and entertain, we owe to an Italian. 
14th century poet and humanist Giovanni Boccaccio lived at the height of medieval Europe. His enduring claim to fame, a prose work called The Decameron, tells of ten charming young people swapping stories with each other in a secluded villa outside Florence. But whereas Chaucer's chatty pilgrims were gathered en route to pay their respects to a martyred bishop, Boccaccio's narrators in The Decameron are waiting out the Black Death. Quote, in men and women alike, Boccaccio writes, at the beginning of the malady, certain swellings, either uh, on, the gro- on the groin or under the armpits, waxed the bigness of a common apple, others to the size of an egg, some more, some less, and these the vulgar named plague boils. Uh, the bubonic plague was, to put it mildly, fucking gross and terrifying. <laughs> And it didn't, yeah. and of course the boils, it didn't stop with the boils. From these unsightly boils, which often appeared on the groin or armpits, as observed, copious amounts of blood and pus would ooze. Shortly after came chills, vomiting, diarrhea, body aches, and fever-induced delirium. Next, tissue at the extremities would begin to necrotize and turn a stark frostbitten black, hence the disease's evocative nom de plume, the Black Death. Fluid would build up in the lungs and bring on suffocation. Death capped off proceedings with ruthless efficiency. In some cases, and this floored me, the afflicted could go to bed, the very picture of health, and be dead by morning. I mean, that's kind of a blessing based upon some of these other descriptions. Well, the uh, yeah, yeah, get out of my head. These, however, were the lucky ones. <laughs> some unfortunate <laughs> souls could suffer in agony for weeks before finally succumbing. Ugh. So contagious was this horrific disease that Boccaccio observes, quote, the mere touching of clothes appeared itself <gasps> to spread the malady to the toucher. As we now know, the Black Death, or bubonic plague, attacks the lymphatic system, causing the lymph nodes to swell. This gives the malady a fast pass to our bloodstream and, incidentally, our lungs. A sinister little basilisk called Yersena pestis is the culprit, first discovered by French biologist Alexandre Yersin some 500 years after Boccaccio gave us the world's first piece of pandemic fiction. Uh, the bacillus travels from My person to person. My body is reacting to what you're saying the same way it reacts to, like, stories about snakes and spiders. Oh, we'll get to the snakes and spiders. Um ah! <laughs> <laughs> the bacillus travels from person or uh, bacillus travels from person to person through the air, but rodents and stray dogs were also effective spreaders, particularly given how rampant these were in your typical medieval city, dependent as they were on the maritime trade. Rats, after all, love a well-stocked ship. How did they contract it? Well, fleas. Fun fact, here's how the disease works. Yacerna pestis essentially gets into a flea system and blocks its digestive tract, making the flea both aggressively hungry but unable to process sustenance. So when they attempt to feed on a host, the infected fleas end up vomiting into the wound they've created to suck blood, which is how dogs and cats and people become infected. It's really disgusting. Now, recorded... I'm so itchy. I know, right? <laughs> Get your dogs and cats... Flea and tick medicine. <laughs> um, He's so itchy right now. <laughs> recorded, recorded outbreaks of bubonic plague go back as far as the 6th century, the first being named the Plague of Justinian after the Eastern uh, Roman Emperor Justinian I, who contracted the disease but miraculously survived. But it wouldn't earn the moniker the Black Death, a.k.a. the Pestilence, a.k.a. the Great Mortality, until Genoese merchant ships from the Crimea brought it into the Mediterranean basin sometime around 1347. 
Now, for a variety of reasons too, too vast to go into here, Chinese goods were all the rage in Europe at the time. The so-called Silk Road, a loose network of trade routes between Europe and the Far East, supplied a steady influx of merchants and their wares. With these, alas, came bubonic plague, which China had already been dealing with for centuries. Once it got a foothold in Messina, the Black Death spread to the port of Marseille in France and to the port of Tunis in North Africa. Then it reached Rome and Florence, two cities at the center of an elaborate web of trade routes in Europe. And by the following year, the Black Death had cast a shadow uh, already over Paris, Bordeaux, Lyon, and London. So it was pretty much fucking everywhere by then. Now today, this grim sequence of events, while terrifying, is at least comprehensible. But to the mid-14th century mind, no rational explanation was forthcoming. No one could no agree. No one was safe from it either, right? It, it, not, no single yeah. person, yeah. No one could agree on how the Black Death was transmitted. No one knew how to prevent it. No one knew how to treat it. At least one doctor of the period theorized that, quote, instantaneous death occurs when the aerial spirit escaping from the eyes of the sick man strikes the healthy person standing nearby and looking at the body. End quote. Jesus. Fun at parties, this guy must have been. All of which is to say the confusion and disinformation rampant in our own time has an all-too-familiar historical precedent. So if anyone tries to tell you masks don't work or that CDC guidelines are all about control or that the disease spreads via 5G towers, they are literally trying to go medieval on your ass and you should respond in kind. <clears throat> yes, now, go medieval on theirs. Uh, Give them at the a social play. distance. <laughs> no, don't do that. Sorry, I misunderstood. Sorry, go medievally socially distance on them, but we'll we'll get to that. Um, Use a spike. <laughs> now, given the devastating third wave of our own modern plague and the slew of idiotic responses to it from people with nary two fucking brain cells to rub together. Forgive me, it's a strong opinion, but it's mine. I thought listeners might <laughs> find it instructive to explore the various belief systems and counterproductive responses that characterized our ancestors' reaction to the deadliest epidemic in human history. A vibrant, though damaged, fresco adorning St. Mary's Church in Berem offers a glimpse of life in medieval Europe during the plague. Titled Danse Macabre, it depicts a throng of skeletons capering amid everyday folk from all walks of life just trying to carry on business as usual. Indeed, the Danse Macabre genre in art was immensely popular, a well-worn allegory driving home the notion that death unites us all, regardless of rank, wealth, age, or creed. Speaking of creed, Religion would inevitably shape the medieval mind's close and visceral relationship to the Black Death, but that link was a sword that cut both ways. Quote, people reacted with hopeful cures and responses based on religious belief, folklore, and superstition, along with some medical knowledge, all of which were informed by Catholic Christianity in the West and Islam in the Near East, writes Joshua J. Mark in his article for Encyclopedia of Ancient History. These responses took many forms, but overall did nothing to stop the spread of the disease or save those who had been infected. Incidentally, most records we have concerning the Black Death come to us from the writings of Christians and Muslims. European Jews, though they did write on it, were frequently blamed for the outbreak, and their works burned accordingly, often along with the writers themselves. Now pray, petition, and persecute though they might, Christians found the Almighty's response to the Black Death rather tepid. Uh, before long, this drove a wedge between the average person and their faith, splintering once and for all a previously unified Christian worldview which made way for the Protestant Reformation not long after. Now, by contrast, Islamic belief remained largely intact, seeing the plague as a gift from God that provided ample opportunities for martyrdom. 
though. So Christian and Muslim views about the Black Death shared a lot in common, but this key difference maintained Islamic cohesion amid Christianity's systematic unraveling in Europe. Now, to Christians, since the plague was thought to have been sent by God as punishment, this is more from uh, the article by Joshua J. Mark, the only way to end it was admission of one's personal sin and guilt. Repentance, uh, re repentance of sin, not repetition of sin, uh, but repentance <laughs> of sin, it's an important distinction there, and renewed dedication to God. To this end, processions would wind their way through cities from a given point, say the town square or a certain gate, uh, to a church or shrine, usually dedicated to the Virgin Mary. Participants would fast, pray, purchase amulets or charms to keep them safe. Uh, but even after European Christians began to understand that the plague was contagious, these processions and gatherings continued because there was simply no other way to appease God's wrath, in their view. Now, as traditional religious responses fell short of the grim reality facing Europe, a new movement burst on the scene in Austria that would significantly up the ante. The flagellants, not flagellants, but the flagellants. <laughs> <laughs> little column A, little column uh, B. Yeah, right. They first appeared in 1348, spreading as far as Flanders by the following year. This zealous and terrifying bunch, sinister in dark ceremonial robes and led by a designated master, would wander from town to town, whipping themselves bloody and working up crowds into a lather against Jews, gypsies, and other minorities thought responsible for the disease. So violent was the spectacle of their frenzied penance that Pope Clement VI banned the practice outright in 1352. But by then, all manner of gruesome folk cures persisted. Um, filleting a snake, long considered an embodiment of Satan, was thought to be a cure. You just rub the gorbisot pieces over your body and let the oil draw out the bad humors. This is incidentally where the term snake oil salesman comes from. Oh. Um, also, also thought effective against uh, the plague, a potion made from unicorn horn. Uh, unicorns mm. was a very popular symbol for Christ back in the day. Don't ask me where the fuck they found unicorns back then. Um, now, prevailing medical knowledge at the time held that— Oh, I that can say—oh, actually, a lot of the times um, they would get them imported uh, because they were getting <laughs> narwhals. They were getting horns from narwhals up in north, really far north, because that's where they were. So people would get narwhal uh, horns and then sell them as unicorn horns. Yeah. The more you know. Thank you. Um, no now, prevailing medical Random knowledge. <laughs> prevailing medical knowledge held bad air to be responsible for the disease. This was known as the miasma theory or miasma theory of disease. Now, to be clear, this wasn't bad air as we understand the term. Bad air was believed to be the byproduct of unfavorable planetary alignments and straight-up demonic forces. So conscientious it's like negative folks, energy. Basically, uh, yeah. conscientious folks carried fragrant herbs and flowers around with them at all times as protection against bad air. Hence, the pocket full of posies referenced in the children's rhyme, A Ring Around the Rosies, which, as we know, is about the plague. Now, serious hypochondriacs could even go so far as camping out near a sewage pit because it was thought the bad air would attract and draw out your own. Now, bear in mind, sanitary conditions, especially in large cities at the time, were fucking deplorable. So in the poorest districts, lack of access to plumbing meant people just did their business in chamber pots that were then nonchalantly emptied into the street. So just imagine for a second how bad, bad air must be to stand out among the usual odors of medieval city life. Now, cities, of course, were a huge part of the problem as wealthy city dwellers fled their remote villas, a la Boccaccio's narrators from the Decameron. Residents of poor rural communities looking for work and some kind of access to medical care rushed in to fill the void. 
Cities grew overrun with the desperate, the superstitious, and the uneducated. Angry mobs would foment against the minorities thought responsible for calling down the wrath of God. Refugees, in turn, were, uh, from persecution, were forced to ignore quarantine and spread the plague far and fucking wide. So it just became this vicious fucking cycle. Mm. The Black Death unleashed hatred, blame, and violence on a more horrific scale than by any pandemic or epidemic in world history, bringing to a head the long-standing animosity felt towards Jewish people by Christian communities. Jews were routinely suspected of poisoning wells, murdering Christian children in secret rites, practicing various forms of evil magic in order to injure or kill Christians, etc. Um, I mean, you know, in Savoy and, and uh, Ludoc in Catalonia, they were often massacred. Uh, because they were thought, you know, and this was in spite of papal bulls expressly forbidding these types of actions against these communities. So, so much for Christianity under fucking pressure. Yeah. Um, now, because Islamic doctrine doesn't recognize original sin, Muslim prayers as related to the Black Death were, of a, were more of a supplication, similar to how you would ask God for plentiful harvests or good weather. Uh, Muslims just didn't associate the disease with mankind's moral failing. Our personal sins really didn't enter into it. But because prayers of supplication were considered most effective when invoked by large groups, it was standard operating procedure for the faithful to pack local mosques or march through the streets in processionals. So, of course, the plague yeah. spread. As one might expect, supernatural visions among Muslims saw a significant uptick during this time. A pilgrim from Asia Minor journeyed to Damascus and insisted to a cleric there that Muhammad himself had personally instructed him to have people recite the Surah of Noah 3,363 times as a bulwark against the plague. Swarms of the faithful took this recommendation to heart and in Cairo invoked the Surah for a full week, slaughtering innumerable heads of cattle and distributing the meat among the poor, but then spreading the fucking disease. Yeah. All in all, the devout Muslims saw in the Black Death a welcome release from the world of endless catastrophic change that is our reality and thought this was their gateway into a paradise of eternal form. So they had a very, very different view of it. Also, the various strains of ancient Persian religions that kind of informed the different sort of bedrock material of Islam, so to speak, tended to attribute illness to the work of Ahriman, a malevolent deity. It's also known as uh, Angra Manyu. And um, so the the disease had a source in a sort of satanic-like figure. Now, malign mm. spirits in this deity's employ, like jinn, um, were believed to spread the plague on purpose. This belief gave, gave rise to an increase in folk magic and the use of amulets and charms to ward off evil spirits. The charmer amulet would be inscribed with divine names and, and prayers and incantations would be recited to imbue the artifacts with magical powers. But of course, they didn't want to work. And just as in Europe, those who could afford to do so left infected cities for the countryside and people from rural communities came to the cities for the same reasons as their European counterparts. Since the plague was not believed to be contagious, for at least at first, there was no reason for people to stay in one place as far as they were concerned, though there was a stricture. Uh, in the Quran against going to or fleeing from plague-stricken regions, it was largely ignored. Uh, the thinking was whether the plague came from Allah, from Jinn, or from you know wherever, one couldn't escape fate and it was blasphemy to try. Mm. On the upside, at least, compared to European Christians, there is no evidence that minorities were persecuted in the Near East during the Black Death. In fact, Jewish, uh, Jewish physicians were highly regarded, even though they could do no more for plague victims than any others. 
Speaking of physicians, the struggle to keep the pestilence under control led to the world's first form of institutionalized public health. 15th century northern Italian city-states were the first to draft strict plague regulations. Health magistrates vested with full legislative, judicial, and executive powers were appointed to oversee all matters directly related to the plague. By the 16th century, these magistrates had become so formidable, so powerful, that what, whereas they had begun as just kind of pro tem positions, they grew into a permanent agency. Um, this represented what philosopher Mark M. Snowden calls, quote, a vast extension of state power into spheres of human life that had never before been subject to political authority, including everything from the regulation of butcher meat to the quarantining of whole populations. The bad air theory of infectious disease led, in Venice, to the creation of lazarettos, or outlying atolls or islands where trade ships would be detained for fumigation for a period of time. Crew and passengers alike were isolated under guard for 40 days before being allowed into the city proper. This, incidentally, is where we get the word quarantine. It's Italian for 40. The time frame wasn't arbitrary either. Judo-Christian scripture holds the number 40 in high regard. For example, Moses secluded himself atop Mount Sinai for 40 days. Christ was tempted for 40 days. Post-resurrection, he hung out with his disciples for 40 days. The examples in the Bible are endless. By sheer coincidence, this kind of arbitrary time frame just so happened to outpace bubonic plague's incubation period by about three weeks. So in other words, quarantine worked. And it wasn't long mm -hmm. before other port cities began to follow Venice's example. Yeah. A landlocked analog to the Lazaretto sprung up across Europe in the form of vigilante militias, improvised factions posted outside city gates that compelled travelers to hole up in sanitized cordons on the outskirts of town before being allowed to enter. One such cordon, or, you know, basically, uh, uh, you know, quarantine camp in Austria, stretched over a thousand fucking miles and was in what? continuous use for more than a 160 years. The militias uh, you know, went from being vigilante to being state-sponsored in short order, and before long, every able-bodied male peasant on hand was required to serve on them for a period of time. So successful were these rather draconian measures in stemming the plague from without that Italian nation-states, who, as you know, had been at war with each other since time out of fucking mind, slowly came around to the idea of cooperating with each other in the interest of public health. So that, that's a plus. But of course, cutting the pestilence off before it crossed under the archway of your city gate was only as good as the sanitation efforts taken within to vanquish the disease. Health authorities adopted extreme measures to prevent the disease from spreading inside the city walls. A slew of municipal officials were hired to corral plague victims into lazarettos and usher the dead to mass graves. So-called searchers and body clearers, as they were called, had the authority to bust into someone's home and drag them out, living or dead, by the scruff. Didn't help that these officials were often rip-roaring drunk, or that anyone lucky enough to survive a stay in one of the local lazarettos received a hefty bill for the privilege. Those those officials could even compel you to euthanize your pet if it was thought a likely spreader, mm. which is just fucking. Or they sad. throw you on the pile and send you to Bovelia, <laughs> which we covered in like our first <laughs> right, 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 like, our first quarantine Christmas edition, yeah, 2018, early 2019, late 2018, early. Right. 2019. Oh, oh, so pre pre quarantine. My bad. My bad. Yeah. Um, yeah. But indeed, it should be noted that citizens who received these attentions were comparatively lucky. Households could just as easily be forced to sequester entirely without access to the outside world at all. 
If a red cross were painted across your door, especially in London, no one was allowed to enter or leave the premises under pain of death, not even doctors. Each town boasted a legion of what were called syndics, government officials whose job it was to confiscate the keys of every home on their block, usually the poorer districts, of course, during times of quarantine and lock the doors from the outside, effectively isolating residents until further notice. Each morning, a roll until the call... the vampires broke in and killed them. <laughs> Each morning, That's all I can a roll think of right now. I can only think of uh, of um, uh, vampire. Uh, what, what is? Uh, oh, oh, oh uh, uh, Interview with a vampire. Interview with a vampire. I was like, everyone's screaming at us. I know you're screaming at us. Interview with a vampire. That's all I can think of right now. Now the syndic process. These are essentially like glorified block captains who had to go and be like, give me your keys, give me your keys, give me your keys. I'm gonna lock you all in. And each morning, a roll call would be held, whereby the syndic would assess your condition by brief interview through the window. If the syndic caught you lying about having a fever, or if you were caught breaking quarantine in any way, the syndic had the authority to, to kill you on, on the spot. Um, syndic's necessary evil... Yeah, but I don't want to wear a mask. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> syndic's necessary evil, though they may have been, struck fear into the hearts of healthy and afflicted people alike, of course. But for sheer staying power as far as the popular imagination is concerned, they hardly bear comparison to that most darkly evocative of figures, the Plague Doctor. Dun, dun, dun! At the Black Death's height, trained physicians all across Europe despaired of finding a cure, indeed any treatment, and fled their noble profession in panic. This mass exodus of doctors from areas hardest hit left a gaping hole cynical opportunists were all too happy to address. As you might gather, 15th century medicine pretty much flew by the seat of its pants to begin with. But plague doctors, but plague <laughs> doctors, right, uh, weren't even trained physicians by the standards of the day. They were essentially government contractors whose only qualifications were a willingness to venture into infected areas, tally the dead, and help enforce quarantine. The risk paid handsomely, so the work tended to attract outliers and mercenaries and psychotics. Mm. Um, Despite the relatively straightforward nature of the duties entrusted to them, it was soon common practice among plague doctors to hawk dubious folk cures for a pretty penny among the afflicted. They charged the afflicted over and above the exorbitant fees proffered on them already by the state. Most were, in effect, snake oil salesmen, as I mentioned above. The meager few that showed an earnest desire to combat the disease took to using patients as test subjects. You can imagine the travesties birthed by their lack of credentials. Um, most of what the plague doctors offered by way of treatment was simple elaborations on existing medical practice, of which they themselves had a limited understanding. One of the more brutal practices involved pour, uh, pouring mercury over the victim and putting them in an oven, thinking that would burn out the disease. Which it did, but it also fucking killed you. But it burnt out the disease. But so. it burnt out the disease. Uh, another fun fact that you may not know, uh, one of the many strict taboos put on moratorium during the Black Death, desecration of corpses. Plague doctors were among the first people allowed to perform autopsies on human bodies. Now, for all that, the postmortems conducted by these fumbling, uneducated pseudo-physicians yielded little of value. The plague doctors followed in the pestilence's wake with poultices, potions, crazy fucking ideas, and empty promises. Indeed, the only quantifiable effect the plague doctors had on the disease was spreading it. The long, <laughs> curving nose of their distinctive masks, which we all recognize, which, uh, they were actually designed to hold a clutch of aromatic herbs to shield the wearer mm -hmm. from bad air. Uh, and this came appropriately enough to, to resemble the beak of carrion birds, um, which was sheer accident. 
Nightmare fodder. Yeah. Their robes, which we all know, uh, were long so as to leave little exposed flesh. The material was made of uh, was of, of a waxed leather thought to armor the plague doctor against the disease when it inevitably attempted to jump from the dead to the living. Uh, the wax, Evil incidentally, right, the wax rendered the leather black. But because they wanted to be seen more as healers than death accountants, which is really all they were, um, the costume. That's what they look like. Yeah, the costume yeah. included a wide-brimmed hat, an accoutrement that was had long been associated with actual physicians. The cane plague doctors were seen to carry with them wasn't just a walking stick. It was their primary means of interacting with patients while maintaining a safe distance. In fact, the cane is often how they took a pulse. Uh, now, before how the Black Death, you... very carefully. Um, okay. I mean, remember, this is also a time when people were probably buried uh, prematurely a lot because it's like, oh, they have no pulse. Sir, you're holding the cane at the wrong end. Um, <laughs> I can't feel their pulse through this cane. <laughs> and my glove. And, you know, yeah. Um, right. And before the black <laughs> leather cape. <laughs> I mean, it must have been terribly hot. Um, yeah. Now, before the Black Death had run its course, tens of millions had perished. Some estimates placed the death toll at up to 60% of the European population. And though mortality rates were particularly high among plague doctors, incredibly, the profession outlived the Black Death by several centuries. As the plague itself waned, uh, as inevitably did because quarantine did work, uh, plague doctors adapted. You know, uh, there was less work for them. But by the 16th century, it was fashionable for noblemen to employ plague doctors as personal physicians. So they were kind of the alternative medicine of their day. They were the goop mm. of the their goop. day. Here, put this in your vagina. It'll help you. Uh, it'll save you from, uh, I don't know, let's say asthma. Whatever. I don't know. In the meantime, being the Black poor, Death. It'll save you from being poor. That's probably what it is. <laughs> in the meantime, the Black Death slowly began to dwindle due to the success of quarantining, improved hygiene, and the practice of cremating the deceased instead of burying them, which became a, wide, a wider spread practice in Europe than it had ever been before because it was just necessary. There was not enough land to bury these bodies in. But it didn't disappear entirely. In fact, it never has. In fact, um, over the next three centuries, there'd be no less than 30 outbreaks across Europe, each one of them devastating, though not quite as bad as the Black Plague. The Great, uh, the, the Black Death, the Great Fire of London supposedly stamped out the last of these in 1666, but this, alas, is also a myth. The 17th century outbreak was by then already on the decline, and the Great Conflagration of London just fucking added insult to injury. It might terrify you also to know that from 2010 to 2015, that's that's within the past few years, there have been 3,248 cases of bubonic plague reported worldwide, resulting in 584 deaths, according to the World Health Organization. So it's still around. Plague so retro. Uh, it's a classic. It's coming back. Um, thank God for streaming. Uh <laughs> <laughs> plague, plague can still be found on all continents except Oceania. Weirdly, um, there is a risk of human plague wherever the bacteria and, and, and an animal carrier and a human population can coexist. In uh, in its most common, uh, it is most common. Excuse me, in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, Madagascar, and Peru. And epidemics have occurred in Africa, Asia, and South America. Since the 1990s, most human cases have occurred in Africa, according to the WHO. Madagascar is known for being home to the disease, and cases of bubonic plague are reported nearly every year in that country. Last year, a number of cats in Wyoming, USA, were discovered with the plague, prompting mm. warnings from state officials, says Pacific Standard Magazine. 
So that's just, I mean, God, there's so much to unpack there. But like, yeah, God almighty fucking like <sighs> Jesus. I, I'm just floored by the, the, the parallels, especially people gathering mm-hmm. to pray. You know, and and how that's just you know these 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 services end up just being super spreader events. I mean, it, it's like it's it's like we've learned nothing. Yeah. You know, and of course well, we're and still living it, at a time when bullshit medicine is still around. You know, you could still go to bullshit doctors that try to sell you fucking magnets or 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 you know whatever yeah or, or fucking you know vagina eggs, and yeah. So I mean, look at how many people were hawking these. Oh, if you drink bleach, COVID will go away. Like that's just—it seems to be in our bones to just respond, or for a, a segment of the population, every time a pandemic happens, to respond in the just dumbest, most childish ways yeah. imaginable as a response to the fear. One of the things to take away from that is that people who are like, "Oh, it's a mask. I don't want to wear a mask. I don't want to have to quarantine. We got to keep everybody. We can't let the pandemic win. It's not like the pandemic is a terrorist cell that's trying <laughs> to keep us afraid, right? It's different. It's different. It's very and, different. Um, when, I mean, eventually to stop it, there will be people on the street saying, with guns, you must stay inside because people won't fucking do it. Exactly. And so anyone that's like really fighting against CDC measures because they think mm-hmm. of them as draconian. Man, don't don't put us in a position where the where the state has to actually enforce genuine draconian rules. Like yeah. being told to stay home or wear a mask. Man, it, I I just don't find that to be a terrible thing. Like it can be, sure. If you're living in a house that's fucking unhealthy for you, that's fucking terrible. And I hope you find help. But like going out and wearing a mask. Like all the people that I see that are bitching about having to take these measures are fucking fine. Like yeah. Maybe not mentally, but they're fucking fine. Mm. They're not in dire straits. They're just bored and immature and fucking unable. They just can't stand someone telling them what to do. Even when that thing is in their fucking self-interest, they just cannot handle. It's the same people that just bitch. Like, you can take, you can give them a good piece of advice, but they will refuse to accept it until they can pretend they gave it to them themselves. And yeah. that's well, why... Well, don't underestimate how powerful... Um, certain news organizations that denied it. There are still a lot of people in the United States that don't think it's real. It and, and those, how many and those outlets, it, you're right. They and just those don't are, and it's real. Fuck them. But those outlets have power because of a human tendency to just be like, no, no. Yeah. I don't believe it. And they played on it. And they politicized it. It should never have been politicized. It should have been the people are important. And it doesn't matter. Politics doesn't matter. We have to protect the people over money and that like is you can, not the case if you and are having a heated argument tragic. with another human being um yeah. and it's like a life or death argument we're like holy shit we got to figure this shit out now you fucked with me you've done something like you could be having the most impassioned life or death heated argument with someone if the fucking building you're in starts to burn you got to reprioritize both of you yeah that's just yep. how it goes. And if you're not willing Absolutely. to do it, you're you're a fucking moron that can't see past mm-hmm. your own asshole. And I have no time for you. And I don't want bad <laughs> things for you. Uh, but I am not going to fucking let you dictate how we as a whole handle this horrible, horrible reality. Because people right. can bitch all day about, like, it's not fair that I have to. No, it's fucking not fair. But d- fair does not enter into it. Here we it, are. I'm, it's I'm not sorry. fair that people are dying. It's not fair that this disease yeah. is a thing. Nothing about this is fair. It's not fair that people lost their jobs. It's not fair. It's not fair. There's nothing yeah. fair about it. And, and so, trying to and make it fair mental fucking to just gymnastics. a few people isn't fair, right? Mm. <laughs> so mm-hmm. like, yeah, no, no, I think it's it's, like we have life to, isn't like... fair. Have you never seen the labyrinth? <laughs> it's, <yeah. laughs> it's in the labyrinth. <laughs> it's in labyrinth. 
Oh my god. Well, thank you for <laughs> not to be this. too preachy. Yeah, but sorry. We had but to preach a little I feel bit. most of our listeners are on the same page with us. It's yeah. just we, well, and I know, think we, it's important uh, to understand some of this history too, like how it happened, what happened, how things are yeah. different. Because too, a lot of times we just need some talking points with people to mm-hmm. rash to to just get through with. Yeah, they just need information, is, good information. Yeah. Yeah, but, so that you can so, go forth and conquer. I don't fucking know. Go forth, um, but and, then also that you'll have more of an understanding when we talk about hauntings based around the plague or mm, the nineteen eighteen flu mm, pandemic. Mm, um, mm. So because in uh, tragically, there will be stories about ghosts from COVID as well. Oh, there and already are. There already are. It's awful. <sighs> it's so sad. Um, it's certainly too soon. <laughs> For those right now, it, it really um, is. give us a week or two. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's hard. It's hard. It's not very. I'm sorry. I apologize. I mean, we have to um, laugh. We have to laugh, but we don't mean it. Yeah, because otherwise, where would we be? Um, mm. So anyway, thank you guys for listening. We really, really appreciate it. Hope you enjoyed it um, and, and learned some stuff. I certainly did. Uh, Same. Know Same. A lot about it. So uh, 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 thank you. Please. Um, Send us your ghost stories, uh, whatever they may be, <laughs> to ghoulintentions.com. Yes, uh, At the yes. top of the menu, submit your story there. Uh, thank you to our patrons, as always. We really appreciate you. We have a chat coming up, I believe, on Saturday. So we uh, Oh, yeah, we do, don't we? Oh, my God, we yeah. do. Yeah, so I'm looking forward to talking to some folks and answering some questions there. That should be really fun. But in the meantime, please, please, please stay safe. Please, please, please stay sane. And remember, remember, it's it's okay okay to to sleep sleep with with the the lights lights on, but not to kill a snake and cover yourself with the oil. And you can sleep in a mask if you want. That's fine. Yeah. I love sleeping with a mask (laughs) over my eyes. It's great. (laughs) Now it's awkward. Bye. Bye.